We're going to be in Luke chapter 4. The words are up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Uh, that's pretty much where we're going to be. I'm going to jump all around. So if you've got a pencil and some paper, you're going to want to pull that out. And we're going to want to really be focused on what it is we're looking at today. I've got a full, uh, full, full bunch of stuff I want to, yeah, a full bunch of stuff. I've got some, a full bunch of stuff I want to give you this morning. So hold on. Here we go. I've titled the message this week, The Authority of Scripture. The Authority of Scripture. We're looking in this series of how to, how to create a healthy church community. And, you know, last week we took a look at the Great Commission and what that meant. The week before we looked at taking inventory, both individually and then corporately as a body. This week I want to take a look at the authority of Scripture. Why it's important that we know and understand our Bibles. And really what I want us to unpack as we move forward over the next 30 or 35 minutes is the best way for the followers of Jesus to be best equipped for life's challenges and every day-to-day struggle for our desert moments, we're going to call them, is to know the word, to commit it to memory, and to be walking in community with others, not alone. The worst thing we can do is be alone. And I want to start here that every single one of us has a set of core values, Every single one of us here today has a set of core values, whether they're declared and they're written down and they're a set of values that we bring to our mind every single day, or they're just principles that we live out as we go about our day-to-day living. Every single one of us has a set of core values. We are what we value in a sense. If you want to know what your core values are, look at how it is you prioritize your life. Look at what it is you think on as you go through each day. What you spend the majority of your time on, that will give you a good indication of what your core values are. Every single one of those things speak to a core value in your life. Some good and sadly some are bad. We don't all have good core values, but we have them. But they'll always show us where our heart is at and where the priorities are in our life that we find to be most important. And for me, core value number one, it's ever since I became a Christian, is very simple. The Bible is my guidebook for living. Core value number one. Now what that means is that I make it my priority to know and to understand the scriptures and apply them to my day-to-day life. Not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a follower of Jesus. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't then mean that I have to be the expert. I was a follower of Jesus and digging into the word probably more then than I am now, sadly to say. I study the scriptures to know who God is. That's primarily why I do that. And then who I am in relation to him. What he has for me to do in my life from day to day. What my callings and my giftings are. And how I'm to grow in Christ. That's the whole reason why it is I read. I look to the scriptures as we all should so that we can know what is good to do and what is bad to do. But even more importantly, and actually most importantly, we look to the scriptures to find Jesus and to be conformed to the likeness of who he is. That's Romans 8, 29. To see God's glory within the story of the people of Israel because ultimately the story of the people of Israel is our story. And that'll make sense as we unpack this this morning. As we continue our series on what makes for a healthy church, I want us to look at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry and an incident that happened there in the beginning of Luke's gospel. It focuses on a few things, not least of which is the importance of knowing the Bible and knowing how to apply it. Those are two different things. Just because you know the Bible 
doesn't mean you have a clue how to apply it. We have to learn both of those things. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and only, shall you, only him shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And this is a story that we know and we call the temptation of Jesus. And what we see here is the devil at work trying to get Jesus to do things his own way. That's the primary thing that's going on here. Never one to be too creative. The devil himself is tempting Jesus in the very same way that he tempted Adam and Eve. No different. And what we see here in one sense is this. First and foremost, the devil knew and used the word of God to try and manipulate and advance his own worldly agenda by trying to get Jesus to do things differently than he was supposed to. And second, and just as important, he seems to focus on weaknesses. He doesn't attack anybody head on. He tries to use the weaknesses that are within our lives to drive a wedge. And this is what he's doing here. He's looking to drive a wedge between Jesus and the Father and the mission that Jesus has. In an attempt to get Jesus to do things in a way that serves him and not God's overall plan for this world. That's all going on here. It's a perfect situation actually for the devil to attempt to do this. He picks his moments very well. Because here Jesus is in the desert. It's a stark place, it's a lonely place, and it's completely barren. He's separated from everybody. And let's understand here, as we take a look at this for a moment, that while the challenge to Jesus came in that desert place, the desert is not a bad place to be if that is where God has ordained you to be. It's only a bad place if you're not supposed to be there. And in fact, it tends to be the place in our lives, if we can identify it, where we have the most potential to learn what we need to learn. And it's the place where we are challenged the most as well. It's not an easy place to be. It is, however, also the place where the enemy shows up and begins to poke around the edges, trying to figure out where it is, our weaknesses are, to see if he can entice us to go down roads that we ought not to go down. interesting to see here that Jesus did not defend himself in any way that is outside of our ability. Think that through. He did not defend himself in any way that is outside of our ability. In other words, he didn't use his deity in order to deliver himself from this. We have at our disposal the authority and the means to withstand the attacks of the enemy just as Jesus did because he was a man in the desert in the power of the Holy Spirit, 
answering the questions that the devil brought to him, not in some deified way or deified form, but as a human being. And the devil, I want you to notice, he doesn't go nuclear on Jesus. He doesn't just go completely sideways to try to create something new to trip him up. He doesn't do that. In fact, he uses the very words of God to try and trip him up. The very words of God. Misuse, misquote, manipulate. They're all ways in which the enemy uses the scriptures to entice believers to do stuff that they ought not to do. That's what's happening here. He also devalues the scriptures. He speaks against them. He causes them to be called into question by the very people who claim to believe them. You see, if the Bible is our guidebook for living and our all-sufficient source for instruction, do we believe that and treat it that way? Do we operate as if that's actually the case in our life? Because if Satan can introduce doubt into that truth, we are all in trouble. The foundation upon which we stand completely falls apart. See, both Peter and Paul make this very clear. Paul's instructing Timothy, that young pastor in Ephesus, he's encouraging, not only emphasizing the importance of mentoring, making sure you have people above you and below you, and discipleship and how you're to train people, and the importance of gathering together in community. He emphasizes the centrality of scriptures, the Bible itself, to all of that. That's the beginning and that's the end. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So don't be surprised if the world is acting the way it is. Read your Bible. But as for you, Paul says, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing that from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The scriptures are inspired, as the assemblies of God would say in their 16 fundamental truths. Peter as well carries this on in his letter when he addresses the church as a whole. He wants to encourage them that what they believe is in a fairy tale. And this is one of the ways in which the enemy tries to get us to doubt this book. That it's just some mythical tale written by a whole bunch of people who wanted to make up a story. Peter himself, an eyewitness, remember, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He's talking of the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured before them. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. He's reassuring us all, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Why? Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, not second, not lastly, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
Now, the fancy wording for what Peter's talking about there is called the dual authorship of Scripture. And in a sense, the easiest way for me to explain that is that Peter, for example, is 100% writing the letter that he's writing. He's not in some sort of mystical trance, in some sort of voodoo thing, waiting for the pen to glide across the page of Scripture and not knowing what's going on. 100% of his character, his focus, his personality, his writing style is all there. And yet at the same exact time, 100% of the Holy Spirit is also actively involved telling him what to write. Peter then expresses that as he writes. It's very important for us to understand this as we look at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Why do I say that? Because the very identity of the people of Israel is encapsulated in his word. In his word. So if you read this story in the verses in Luke 4, verses 1 through 13, and they seem to echo something in your brain, or they mirror an event that you might know, that's good because they do. You see, the people of Israel were given their freedom in the great exodus from Egypt, weren't they? Anybody who's read that story knows that. Anyone who's seen the prince of Egypt knows what that looks like. You see, God brought them from there to Mount Horeb, and he gave them what? The law, his word. And within that, that was their instruction for how it was they were to live in this world. That marked them out as his people. In other words, it was their identity. God's given us our freedom. His word instructs us how to live. That's who we are. They belong to him. And then he sent them out on mission. Go take the promised land. And anyone who's read that story through the book of Numbers and whatnot knows that that didn't really go very well at the first go around. They failed and they found themselves doing what? Wandering in the desert for 40 years. Being fed with manna from heaven And eventually the Quailmageddon thing that happened where they just ate birds until they were coming out their ears. And Jesus here in Luke, if you read this, in a very microcosmic way is living that Exodus experience out, the desert experience. And while he's tempted the exact same way they were and the same way we are to this day, he was without sin. What came his way is exactly the same thing that came the people of Israel's way and our way. A question on sustenance, provision for our tummies, power, and then protection. Jesus doesn't sin in any of these instances when it comes to food or sustenance. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. The devil challenges Jesus right in his weak spot. How do we know that? Verses 1 and 2. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, guess what? He was hungry. I ate about five hours ago, and I'm hungry. Forty days, I'm going to be grumpy and hungry. A lot of times, you see, we think the devil likes to come at us head on. We're looking for this big, full frontal attack. We need to understand that while he is not the brightest bulb in the box, he's also not stupid. Where are you most vulnerable? Think on that. Where in your life are you most vulnerable? Even if it's a good thing in your life, where are you most vulnerable? Doesn't need to be something that's overtly bad that you're sneaking around doing that you know you shouldn't. It could actually be something that's good that has taken the place of something better. That's the place where he's going to hit you. 
and subtly. He doesn't hit you with a hammer. What does he do with Jesus? He uses the scriptures. You're the son of God. You can do anything you'd like to do. Oh, yes, 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 I can. But Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Well, where does that come from? That's written in Deuteronomy. That's where. What is quite possibly Jesus' favorite book, because he quotes from there more than anywhere else except Psalm 22. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Humility, trust in the Lord, being fed. I think we've heard something along those lines at some point this morning. See, but when that doesn't work, he bounces off of that, and he targets another one of the weaknesses that he sees in Jesus and that is in us. That's power. And I would add to that control, but power. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all the authority in their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. It's pretty arrogant, isn't he? If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. See, the danger here for human beings, for Jesus at this moment even, is the ability to think that we are masters of our own destiny. Get yourself sick or have a family member sick and you will realize very quickly that that is so far from the truth, it's unbelievable. We think that we can run things and control things and have the power and make sure that everything is great in our life until it isn't. We need to remember that didn't work for Adam and Eve. Remember I said the story of the people of Israel is our story. The story of the Bible is our story. This didn't work for Adam and Eve. And frankly, it hasn't worked for any human being since then, ever. But we have to see past our pride and our arrogance here. That's the problem. You see, God in his word told Adam and Eve, I am freely giving you everything except one tree. The whole smash is yours. Genesis 1, 28 through 30. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has breath of life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. I like to skip over that because there's no prime rib in there. <laughs> so we'll just leave that out there. But anyway, moving into Genesis chapter 2, because this is important for us to know. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. So we already know that everything's been given to him, Right? Now he's being told you can eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Does anybody need interpretation for that? Okay. What did they want? The one thing. The one thing they were told they can't have. Pride. Pride. You see, the word that Jake brought to us this morning, I think is very fitting here. Because if we don't humble ourselves, guess what? 
God will humble us. And that's what happens here. All of a sudden, we think we know what is best for us. And that's where the devil tempted them, and that's where he's attempting to tempt Jesus. It's about power. But Jesus, who already owns everything and gave it all up in order that he can be with us and like us, is now being offered everything on his own terms. We find him here in this passage in Luke answering this temptation in the way that Adam and Eve should have answered this temptation but didn't. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So that didn't work either. And where do we find that? Again, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Full stop. No interpretation. But again, not to be outdone, he gives another go, and that doesn't work. He decides to play a game of chicken with Jesus to see if he's going to fail to trust God's protection. So we've gone over the sustenance piece and the food, where God will provide. We've gone over the whole power and control thing. And Jesus has said, nope, I know the direction we're supposed to go. We're going to undo what Adam and Eve did and we're going to handle it rightly. Now we're talking about protection. He took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you were the son of God, throw yourself down from there. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Notice that he uses Jesus' own words here all of a sudden. It is written, is what the enemy now says. In other words, okay, you want to keep coming at me with that? That's what I'm going to come at you at. You want to go that route, Jesus? So am I. It's written. The Bible says this, Jesus. How are you going to respond to that one, buddy? Think on this, because this is absolutely essential and important for every one of us to get. This is why you need to know this book. This is why you've got to get on your face before the Lord and get in this book. Something can be a truth statement right out of the scriptures, but out of context, with no pretext to it, and applied in an inappropriate way, it is actually going to violate the very scripture that it's trying to prove. This is why you need to know this book. We wonder why it is we are so weak and unarmed in this world. Dusty Bibles, no time for reading, no time for studying. We make a bunch of assumptions, and then we read a whole bunch of other books and listen to a whole bunch of other people and hope they get it right without checking. I would hope that when you're sitting around your table at night on a Sunday evening after I've run my mouth for 35 minutes, and you're going over this going, let's see if what Pastor said is actually in here and it's true. If you aren't doing that, start. Start. Be like the Bereans. Get into the scriptures. Oh, this looks great. All I need to do is have faith. Trust God and I can fly. No. No, you can't. Guess why? Because God has another very immutable law in this world. And it's called gravity. And you can jump, confessing all the way to the ground that you can fly. But I got some news for you. When you hit that ground... It's going to hurt. And it will happen 100% of the time. 
Can God save us all from our foolishness? Every day and twice on Sunday. Does it for me every week. I don't know about you, but he can save us from our foolishness. But we don't want to test him. We don't want to test him. Because Jesus knows the game here. What's really being said in this last temptation is that God serves you. God is at your beck and call. He obeys your commands and your desires. That's what's really being said here. You tell him what to do. Go ahead, jump off. His word says he'll take care of you, so test him. No, he does not obey my commands. He does not give me all of my desires. And he certainly doesn't serve me and is not at my beck and call. He is God, and I am not. And neither at this particular moment in time is the one person who can claim to be. Yet he submits himself as a man and says, No, Jesus the man responds in the exact same way that every one of us sitting here this morning can, should, and have the capacity to do. Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The one person, frankly, who could have jumped off wherever he was and landed as if nothing had happened was the one person who said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, Jesus knew the scriptures. And those scriptures made him every single thing that Peter and Paul in their descriptions for us tell us we can be. So we need to understand as we see stuff like this in the scriptures and how we apply this in our life, individuals specifically, but churches corporately, that circle themselves around the Bible, that make the scriptures the focus and the centerpiece for authority, for teaching, for instruction, for counsel, for reproof, and for correction, will be healthy people in a healthy church. Jesus didn't get there by five minutes a day. I don't say that flippantly. And I would also encourage those of you who struggle to have Bible time. If you don't have a good habit and a formed habit right now, and five minutes is all you can pull together, Start being consistent in that five minutes. Build a good habit. Form a good spiritual discipline. And then grow that beyond that five minutes. You got to start where you are and then let the Lord move you. Now, a few things came out of our creative team meeting on Tuesday when we meet. I gather with a few people who I just probably run my mouth more than I should, but it's very good that we all can get together and we wrestle around the ideas for the sermons. And, you know, there was a lot of good that came out of this particular week. And uh, a lot of this is from the team. I'm not going to take any credit for it, but I think that these are things that perhaps that you could take away as something that maybe you could assign yourself and really wrestle through. And the first one is this. As Christians, we ought to be thirsty for more. We ought to be thirsty for more. This bend there, done that, know the ending is not a place that we ought to ever be. Ever. Live up to what you have already attained, Paul says to the Philippian church. But he also says, work out what God is working in. It's a continual thing. We have never got there until we get there. So we work on that every day. Live up to what you've attained. 
but don't stay there. We're to be lifelong learners as we seek to glorify God and he seeks to conform us to Jesus. I found that very helpful. Number two, and we've talked about this, but I think it's good to emphasize, remember it is not a bad thing to be in a desert place. We think it is, but it's not a bad thing to be in a desert place, especially if God puts you there. He's trying to teach you something. Growth, refinement, self-reflection, and assessment will happen there if you ask God what he is doing and how it is you can join him in what he's doing. So if you find yourself in a desert place, ask the Lord if he's put you there. And if he has, ask him then, what am I to learn? What are you trying to show me? And, and, And third, it's in these moments where he's preparing us for what's next. He doesn't take us there for no reason. Our faith and our trust is made much more sure the more we know his word, the more we trust in that instruction found in his word, and the more we store it in our DNA. You see, healthy individuals coming together on a Sunday morning create a healthy community. But you will never have a healthy community without healthy individuals. And at the same time, you really can't have healthy individuals unless you've got a healthy community. I leave that with you to think on. That's important to know. And I learned something this week when I was listening to a friend of mine give a sermon last week, and I just want to share this with you because i got a minute. If the worship team could come up, we're going to settle in on one last song. But in the midst of all of these things, especially in our desert moments, there was a time, and I'll give a shout-out to Rob for this one. This isn't mine, but it was just something. Jesus had been teaching all day with a whole bunch of People gathered around him, and he was tired, and the disciples were ready to move on. So he told them to get in the boat and go. So just get in the boat and go. Now, I've read this story for 30-something years, and I'd never seen this. Because after he told them to get in the boat and go, he went up the mountain to pray. And I always had my ideas on what Jesus was praying over. For strength, for encouragement, for you know power, and for refreshing, and all of that stuff. Well, Rob pulls this out when he's preaching at his church last week, and he said this. He said, what he sees going on there... And I'm not so sure he's wrong. I think perhaps he's right. Is that Jesus is going up into the hills to begin praying for the disciples who are now in a boat heading out on a calm lake with a storm coming. It's a desert moment. Jesus knows what's coming and he knows what they need. So I think perhaps in knowing that the storm was coming and that they were headed into it, he was up in the hills praying for them. And what I took from that, I think is important perhaps for all of us in our desert moments. Be in his word because what it does is it reminds us of this, that whatever storm of life you find yourself in, whatever trial you find yourself in, whatever struggle you are in, and whatever desert moment you are in, Jesus already knew it was going to happen before it happened. And he was praying for you before it even happened to prepare you so that when it happens you know what to do. And I thought that that was important for me. And I hope that somebody takes that today and and needs that and just dwells on that for a little while. But as we close, uh, I want us to just all stand. We could have some more time of prayer here as we're done with the word this morning. For those of you who are part of the prayer group, if you could just take your place. Let's just have a moment of silence and then I'm going to pray and then we'll sing this last song.
Father, I thank you for your word. There is nothing on this planet like it. There's not a book anywhere. We can search every corner of this globe. We can search the universe, and there is not a book like this book. I pray as we just sing this last song, Lord, that our hearts and our minds will be focused on what we've all heard today, that we would digest it, that we would rest in it, and that we would understand that the best way to get to know who you are and who we are in light of that is to be spending time in your word, even if all we can do is take a little chunk at the start. I pray that you would encourage each and every one of us as we go forth today to be focused on that, to be asking you what it is we need to do to just grow in that part of our walk so that we can get to know you better and then we can be conformed to the likeness of Jesus and then we can edify each other and we can encourage one another all the more as we see this day approaching. Father, help us to open our hearts and our minds right now as we sing this last song. For those of you in need, the altar is open. There are people up here waiting to pray with you. Now is the time. If there's a tug in your heart, I pray if you are in Christ, don't ignore that voice. If you are here and you are not in Christ and you are feeling that tug in your heart, the very fact that you are here means the Holy Spirit's already working on you. Do not leave this place without somehow responding to that voice and saying, Lord, I don't know who you are, but I want to. Help me know. And I would challenge you and encourage you. There are folks up front and up back who are very willing to encourage you in prayer and help explain to you what it is you're feeling and what you're going through. But please don't leave here if you need prayer before you get it. Let's sing this last song.